This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. For the past seven weeks, Fresh Ed has focused on global learning metrics. Although there is much more to say on this topic, I think it's time to look at something completely different. This week, Sachi Edwards joins me to talk about interfaith dialogue initiatives in U.S. higher education institutions. The ideas of religious identity, religious oppression, and religious privilege are often overlooked when we think about social justice. Sachi wants to change that. With regard to religious identity, I think it's important for uh, schools to take the lead in modeling these types of conversations and modeling the awareness of religious inequity and modeling how to confront and perhaps dismantle this uh, hegemonic Christianity that exists in our society. A lot of people approach social justice work or critical work inspired by or motivated by their faith. It is uncomfortable for them uh, to discuss or recognize or acknowledge or reflect on uh, the privilege that they have as Christians, especially if they are, if they have multiple other oppressed identities. Sachi Edwards is an adjunct professor in higher education, student affairs, and international education at the College of Education, University of Maryland. She's recently published her first book entitled Critical Conversations About Religion promises and pitfalls of a social justice approach to interfaith dialogue. Sachi Edwards, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. You have a a, a new book called Critical Conversations About Religion, uh, and you talk a lot about uh, interfaith dialogues. What are interfaith dialogues? Well, that's a good question. Um, Interfaith dialogues mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And for the most part, it depends upon the sociopolitical context of the area, the particular tensions or violence that exists between religious groups in that area. Um, So there are different needs for interfaith relations, and so there are different manifestations of interfaith dialogue. So is that is it just simply that you'd have you'd have a group of people from different religious backgrounds coming together to talk about their own religious identity? Right. So it could be people from different religious backgrounds coming together to talk about what they believe on a spiritual level. It could t- it could mean people coming together to talk about their lived experiences as a person of their religious tradition, um, potentially even not talking at all about what they believe specifically. Um, sometimes it just means a panel of religious experts talking and an audience of people listening. Um, so yes, it, it could take various uh, forms, but it typically is uh, members of different religious groups or traditions coming together to discuss something related to religion. So you've made a distinction between spirituality and then religious identity, the the tradition uh, of religion that someone may 
live in or be socialized into. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, what this means and how this relates to this idea of religious identity? Yes, I I make a very conscious effort in my scholarship and in my speaking to differentiate religion and spirituality uh, because in the way that I like to talk about it, religion is a very cultural, uh, socialized identity that we all have. Um, spirituality is more of an individual um, journey or an individual um, manifestation of our beliefs in the present moment. It can change and evolve much more uh, quickly and easily than our religious culture. Uh, we are socialized into a very specific worldview that relates to the religion of our family, of our community, of our ancestors. Um, on a spiritual level, we can have very unique, specific, individualized beliefs about the nature of divinity, of the world, of life uh, and death. Um, so I like to make the distinction between the two so that people recognize that they may have a spirituality or spiritual beliefs that are very unique and very different from the religious culture that they were raised in, but they still have that socialization, that religious socialization uh, from their family, from their communities that is much more difficult to uh, get away from. So, for instance, I, I was born and raised in America, so that would be a dominant Christian religion um, or culture, uh, but I'm not spiritually, I'm, I, I don't practice any religion, but I would still be influenced by this um, religious cultural identity that just from where I was born and raised. Well, there are religious minorities who are born and raised in America. So if you are born and raised in America from a traditionally Christian family or a lineage, then then yes, you have this, uh, whether you always realize it or not, you have certain aspects of your cultural outlook that are influenced by Christianity. Um, you know, but there are others who were born and raised in America who have uh, their entire family has a very different religious practice. And so their cultural worldview is shaped by a very different religious tradition. Um, and for those people, the worldview that they were socialized into at home conflicts with the dominant cultural worldview that they see and interact with outside of the home every day. You know, having having dominant religious identities and then minority religious identities in, in, in one nation state like the U.S., there could be religious oppression as, in, as an outcome. Right, yes. So what... Can you talk a little bit about how you understand religious oppression? Sure, sure. So religious oppression as it manifests in the United States um, is a power imbalance. So um, it can take the form of uh, institutionalized uh, benefits that are afforded to those from the dominant group. Uh, for instance, um, the one that is very popular to talk about is the way that school and government calendars are really oriented around uh, the Christian calendar. Um, we have 
Saturdays and Sundays are, are the weekends where people typically aren't in school or government agencies aren't working. Um, we have uh, Christian holidays such as uh, Christmas and Easter uh, typically off on those days. Um, even New Year's Day, uh, which many people believe is a purely secular holiday and, and not tied to religion at all, it's based on the Christian uh, biblical uh, calendar of when the new year starts and um, you know how many years there has been since the birth of Christ. Uh, a lot of other religious traditions celebrate the new year on an entirely different day, not January 1st. So that's one example, um, but there are lots of lots of examples um, uh, outside of that, which we can talk about more if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I would like because your book is on the United States. I, it just would be interesting to you know, in your opinion, what is the state of religious oppression in America today? Sure. Well, um, it's it's getting worse. <laughs> Uh, in the last, uh, actually since 9-11, uh, 2001, there's been a pretty well-documented increase of religious oppression and religious discrimination in the United States, um, primarily directed towards uh, Muslim, Hindu, and Sikh communities. Um, and those tend to be what the public sees. Uh, they tend to be uh, interpersonal acts of discrimination, of violence. Um, there have been a string of, uh, you know, killings and murders and uh, temple uh, destruction and things like that. Uh, but there are also uh, government-level policies that are put into place that scrutinize certain religious groups more than others. Um, and so there has been unfortunately, uh, increasing religious oppression and religious discrimination in the United States since that time. And it's only getting worse. I think that uh, the rise of Donald Trump and his anti-Muslim rhetoric is a good example um, of the way that is manifesting uh, currently and the number of people who consider him to be a legitimate candidate for president. Um, is uh, an example of how rampant this um, religious uh, discrimination, feelings of hatred towards religious minorities really is in the United States. So I, I feel like I have to ask, what's your religious identity? Sure. Well, um, I have a sort of blended religious identity. My father is Hindu and my mother is Buddhist. Uh, my father is an active practitioner, um, and so his religious practice at home was very influential in my home life um, and my religious, uh, my teach religious teaching as a child, as far as what types of stories I was taught um, about. Uh, you know, moral stories about gods and goddesses. Um, uh, outside the home, um, I was raised near my mother's side of the family, and so, uh, and since she, uh, her side of the family is Buddhist, even though she doesn't have a active practice of her own, um, I was raised among them going to Buddhist temples for various events, uh, funerals, death anniversaries, um, holidays, things like that. So I, I'm sort of blended, but um, 
both of them definitely uh, minority religions in the United States. So what was it like growing up and going to schooling in America where, you know, you were a religious minority? Right. Um, so it was uncomfortable so much so that I sort of didn't, I tried not to think about that a lot as a child. Um, I didn't share that part of myself with my most of my friends or my teachers. Um, and even family members of mine who are extended family members who are Christian, you know, they, they perhaps knew, but they, it's not something that we ever talked about. Um, and I don't think that it was until college or maybe even graduate school that I really started thinking more and reflecting more about that side of myself. And, and this is what brought you to this topic of interfaith dialogues. So, you know, what, what's the connection between interfaith dialogues and education? Sure. So, um, education as, uh, many people think of it is the way that we teach our next generation about uh, things that are valuable in life to know about, right? It's also the way that we uh, teach our children how to uh, think critically. So um, even, even though it's somewhat uncomfortable uh, for people to talk about in the K through 12 sector, I, d I do think that it's an important place to start as far as learning, uh, developing religious literacy, um, being able to feel comfortable having conversations about other religions with people from other religions without thinking of it as um, theology or as the promotion of one religion over another or over no religion. Um, at the higher education level, we think more about promoting this idea of thinking critically, right? So um, at the higher education level, it's really important for um, students to learn how to analyze the sociocultural context of what they're seeing around them, um, to understand the inequity that exists. Um, and this relates to all forms of identity, but um, with regard to religious identity, I think it's important for uh, schools to take the lead in uh, modeling these types of conversations and modeling the awareness of religious inequity and modeling how to confront and perhaps dismantle this uh, hegemonic Christianity that exists in our society. How common are interfaith dialogues like initiatives in higher education these days. Uh, from my own experience, I, you know, I'm thinking back to when I was an undergraduate and I had to take a course on multiculturalism. That was kind of a required course in the college, but it didn't touch on religion. It was more about race and gender and sexuality. Right. Um, they are becoming more popular, um in the last 10 years or so. Um, I think this trend is, uh, goes in tandem with this big push in higher education in the US, but also around the world to internationalize our curriculum, our programming, um, our recruitment of students. 
Um, and so because this internationalization is happening, there are there's more diversity on campus, uh, there's more religious diversity on campus, and so uh, this is, I believe, sort of a, a tandem or perhaps a result of this increased diversity, this increased uh, cultural, religious diversity that exists on campus. Um, also, I think that um, we saw waves of promotion of uh, conversations about racial diversity, waves of promotion about uh, gender inequity, about um, LGBT equity. Um, I think that this really is the new frontier of cultural diversity programming on college campuses. Um, it is still quite new, but it is growing um, in the last 10 years, definitely. And so your, your research um, in the book that you recently published looks at one of these interfaith dialogue courses in a U.S. university. What was this course that you were looking at? Sure. So this course was um, a course that actually followed a very specific pedagogical model called intergroup dialogue. Um, and this model was developed through um, courses about race and gender but it is applied around the country to courses about a wide range of identities. So uh, sexuality, national origin, um, ability, size, there are all kinds of identities that um, you, all kinds of courses that use this pedagogical model um, to discuss various forms of identity. So religion is one of them um, and it is, it exists around the country. It's hard to say how many of these programs have specifically classes about religious identity uh, because, you know, a school could have an intergroup dialogue program without necessarily having a course specifically about religious identity. Um, so there are lots of courses around the country that have that. But there are also um, schools around, uh, colleges and universities around the country that have courses uh, that are similar to inter interfaith dialogues that don't follow this specific model. Um, so the course itself was um, targeted towards a inc uh, recruiting diverse students and um, what that means for this model is to have half Christian students and half non-Christian students. Um, and that was purposeful uh, to try to uh, establish a balance and not to uh, have one group feel um, less represented than the other. Um, unfortunately, that didn't quite work out um, in the courses that I observed, um, but that was the intent. Um, so all of these classes had uh, 12 to 14 students in them, um, half Christian and half non-Christian, and the course had an overt social justice uh, aim, which meant that it was their intention and goal to discuss Christian privilege and religious oppression um, through the class. What did you observe? Like, what, what were these students discussing, and what were some of the debates that you witnessed? 
So it's really interesting because I, I sat through as a participant observer in three separate sections of this course for the entire term. Um, and all three had a completely different process and discussed completely different topics. Um, and so, so the first class, for instance, really um, the facilitators tried to discuss inequity, privilege, and oppression, um, but because they didn't uh, redirect the students to talking about religious identity specifically, when the students heard the word privilege, they started talking about white privilege and male privilege. Um, so the course then ended up being somewhat social justice oriented, but not in terms of religious identity. Um, and so when the facilitators would try to bring in religious identity back into the fold, it was briefly, uh, they would briefly talk about uh, something related to religion, and then they would kind of, the students would naturally uh, veer back towards topics that they were seemingly more comfortable or familiar talking about, which was race and gender. Um, in the second course, uh, it became what I call a Religion 101 course, where the students were asked to basically teach their peers about their religion, uh, which ended up being quite uh, unfair for the students who were the only person of their religious identity uh, because they were you know put on the spot by themselves to explain their religion um, you know and these are traditionally aged college students 18 to 20 most of them and you know they don't know facts about their religion and they don't know how they're not well versed in explaining a religious tradition to someone that's never heard of it um, and so it was uh, difficult, to say the least, for some of the students. Um, the third class ended up being a very uh, heady philosophical discussion about the existence or not of a higher power um, and whether or not students would, um, what they believe about, you know, things like life after death or the existence of evil or you know one topic that came up a lot in that class was what would you would you continue to believe in God if aliens came to earth um, and so it, it ended up being a one of those conversations that people crave and they like to talk about um, you know really heady things um, and have these conversations because they don't really typically get to have these conversations uh, with their peers um, but it wasn't it didn't pertain at all to religious identity um, and it certainly didn't pertain at all to uh, social justice so, so you you mentioned that you know the this first section that you observed they felt much more comfortable talking about race and sexuality and privilege in those two domains. What is, what is religious privilege? Um, so Christian privilege is uh, very similar to white privilege and male privilege and heterosexual privilege and it's, it's just a um, unearned benefits that Christians, whether they be uh, practicing believing Christians or non-practicing just culturally Christians, um, 
there are certain benefits that they uh, enjoy living in the United States that they did not earn um, and they did not ask for. Um, and just everyday experiences in life tend to be easier for them. For instance, interviewing for a job or flying on an airplane or making new friends. Um, these are all things that Christians can fairly confidently know that their religious culture is not going to be a detriment to them um, in these experiences, whereas religious minorities tend to um, live with a little bit of fear, perhaps, about how am I going to be perceived by my uh, you know, potential future employer or by this TSA agent or by this new group of friends um, who doesn't share my religious identity. Um, and so those are some examples of how uh, the concept of privilege um, sort of manifests when it comes specifically to religious identity. And it's so fascinating that the students and maybe even the instructors just felt much more comfortable talking about race and sexuality or just talking about different religions and, and you know what are their practices rather than interrogating this idea of identity and religious identity in particular. Um, so, I mean, I guess, is it, is it the issue of instructors? Like, is the reason that these courses that you observed didn't necessarily meet the intention of talking and discussing and critically engaging with the idea of social justice. Is it because of the the instructor, him or herself, who, you know, more or less focused on areas that they felt most comfortable with? Um, I hate to, to blame the instructors, you know, and put the responsibility on their shoulders uh, alone, because I really feel that the lack of literature in this area makes it difficult for them to fully understand this concept. And, and the same goes for students, right? So if many of them felt comfortable talking about white privilege or male privilege or heterosexual privilege because they had heard of the concept or been taught about the concept in other classes. Um, so this was something that was familiar to them. Um, also, there was a, temp a syllabus template that all the facilitators got with uh, suggested readings, um, and many of them were oriented towards race and gender. Um, and so if, they, if the facilitators didn't, weren't proactive in seeking out uh, different readings that applied to religious identity in particular, um, you know, then there was less uh, written uh, assistance to them to help explain the concept to the students. Um, and so, yes, in a way, uh, the facilitators or the instructors of these courses did sort of help to allow the classes to go off track a bit, but um, I think the reason for that is because there isn't a lot of literature about this topic for them to draw from. There isn't a lot of discussion about this issue among people who are in 
uh, diversity and inclusion circles, who are in social justice education circles. This is not an issue that is commonly discussed, and so this is not an issue that the facilitators may have heard of or thought very much about before. Why? Why is that? I mean, it's you know, it's it's ironic that you would have circles of of social justice and diversity experts or instructors, and they exclude religious identity. Sure, I think uh, there are two ways that I could answer that. Uh, the first being that there's this long-standing tradition uh, in education to separate religion and government, right? Um, and so whenever someone is to raise the, anything related to re religion, there's that immediate sort of fear, hesitation, are we crossing that boundary? We don't want to cross this boundary. Um, the other uh, answer that I could give is that a lot of these critical paradigms are rooted in Christianity. And so the uh, a lot of people approach social justice work or critical work uh, inspired by or motivated by their faith, uh, by their Christian faith specifically. And um, it is uncomfortable for them uh, to discuss or recognize or acknowledge or reflect on uh, the privilege that they have as Christians, especially if they are, if they have multiple other oppressed identities. Um, but this is true for all forms of privilege, right? That if you have it, it's hard to see and it's uncomfortable to talk about. Um, and so I think that those are perhaps the two reasons that converge that make this issue really difficult to uh, talk about in, in these circles. So what do, you think, what do you think universities can do to avoid these sort of pitfalls that you've identified? Like, how can they make these interfaith dialogue courses more effective to, to meet that aim of social justice? Sure. So I think the, the first thing is to do, I mean, I, I lay out five specific suggestions um, in my book. Um, a lot of them are very uh, practitioner-oriented. Um, but if we take a step back from that, I think the first thing to do is to start allowing these conversations to occur um, in uh, the higher education setting, um, because I think that that would make uh, the other things that I suggest in my book uh, easier to accomplish. So, for instance, what I uh, suggest in my book first is that you be upfront uh, about the social justice orientation uh, of the course and what that means specifically in terms of religious identity. Um, so, for instance, saying to the, making sure the students know we will be talking about Christian privilege and religious oppression uh, in this class. Um, and so, of course, it's easier to be able to say that and know what you're talking about if, as a faculty member, you have had that conversation um, elsewhere you know, in your professional uh, or academic uh, life. Um, so the second thing I recommend is that they focus on religious identity and not on spiritual belief. Again, this is easier to do if people understand uh, the distinction between the two. Um, the third thing I suggest is that 
they encourage students and facilitators to discuss lived experience uh, rather than theology or hypothetical scenarios. So for instance, why don't you let the students tell us, tell each other what it's like to live in the world as a person of their particular religious cultural background rather than talking about aliens. Um, fourth thing I suggest is that you assign uh, and train facilitators who understand this concept of religious identity in the sociocultural sense, right? Um, and facilitators who are aware of their own privilege or oppression and can articulate how that manifests in everyday life. Um, again, I come back to it's easier to find and recruit and train these types of facilitators um, if uh, these conversations are happening on campus already. And then the last thing I suggest is um, to create a diverse uh, demographic in the classroom, um, maybe not half and half Christian, non-Christian, because that really uh, leans the power towards the Christians in that the non-Christian group is broken down into multiple different non-Christian religions. Um, and what that meant in my research was that there are a number of students who were the only person of their religious identity um, in their class. And that's, you know, in my last suggestion in my book is that definitely that should not happen. There should not be a single person who has nobody else in the room who shares their religious identity. It, it sounds like there's so much research to be done on this field. So, I mean, I'm sure you have quite a full research agenda going forward. Absolutely. <laughs> so I, I wish you the best of luck in that. And, and thank you so much for joining uh, Fresh Head, Sachi Edwards. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Sachi Edwards is an adjunct professor in higher education, student affairs, and international education at the College of Education, University of Maryland. Her new book is entitled Critical Conversations About Religion, which was published by Information Age Publishing earlier this year. Next week, I speak with Andy Green about social cohesion and global education policy. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. If you've liked what you heard today, please rate us on iTunes. It helps please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Bren, and I'll see you next week.